participation groups. Uh, these are something that we uh, set up in September, in August, September, and it's, a, it's just a space to go deep with some brothers or sisters, to know and be known. There are like gender-specific groups of three to four people that uh, commit to meet three times a month from September to May, um, and it's just a, it's a space where people are all there for the same reason. We're here to connect, we're here to go deep, uh, and every week, LTGs, uh, short for Life Transformation Group, follow a simple flow that uh, starts with gratitude. Um, sometimes we get together uh, with brothers and sisters and we just go straight to like all the problems and stuff. So start with gratitude. And it's super funny, uh, you know, a lot of like neuroscience is catching up with like what Paul has said for, you know, forever. Like rejoice always and be, be thankful. And, and, this, and neuroscience would say that gratitude is the state of mind that allows you to build relationships. It allows you to like build friendships and stuff. And if we're all like grumpy all the time, could it be, you know, whatever. That's a different sermon. Uh, and we, then we talk, I have some confession and repentance uh, where we can share what, where we're anxious, what we're struggling with, what we feel like God's teaching, to, teaching us. And then we get to life rhythms. How can we practically abide in Christ, abide in Jesus, walk in step with the Spirit? Um, because, you know, it's, it's one thing to believe the truth. It's another thing to live like it's true in our daily lives. And then we pray for each other by name. Sometimes we lay hands on each other. So it's just a really sweet space. Um, Nothing groundbreaking at all. It's not like a hot new take on, you know, how to do small groups or anything like that. Just being in the church, all those things flow out of the one another commands in scripture. And when we think about the type of gathering spaces, the the type of, uh, like, get-togethers that we want to call our church family to participate in, this is very, very high on the list. It's very intentional. It's for folks who, who want to grow and I think I, I, we, we tried it for the first time last year and saw a lot of fruit, um, so we're excited to, to launch them. So we're beginning the process of forming them. Uh, after the gathering, the, the Google form will pop up on Slack, so you can sign up, even if you're already in one, even if you're planning to lead one or whatever, if you just go fill that out, that will help us as we form them, just be thinking and praying about how you could jump in there. If you were in one this past year and feel led to, uh, to lead one and kind of provide that kind of experience to, uh, to other folks or to new folks, uh, talk to me about that. There's some training involved and stuff. But excited about that, excited to just have space where you can be, you can be known and know other people and be prayed for. So uh, that's the, uh, the announcement. I will hand it off to Susie for the reading of God's word. Thanks for being here on a, a holiday weekend instead of, instead of the beach. So... Be excited about cashing those in when you get to glory. Uh, this, this weekend is, uh, I just, that's not true. We don't actually believe that. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we, we celebrate our country, and uh, as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about a time I heard someone say that democracy was a result of the fall. And, you know, I was brought up in America, you know, borderline indoctrinated like everybody else, and I was like, wait, what? Democracy is the greatest you know, political invention of humanity or whatever. Uh, and they weren't like knocking democracy necessarily. They were saying the reason well, went that uh, democracy uh, was invented because of the combination of sin and authority, sin and power. And they'd seen that combination, humans had seen that combination go bad over and over and over again. And so, you know, democracy is all about checks and balances and distributing power over uh, various positions and committees and all that stuff. And <clears throat> there's a lot of wisdom in what the, the founding fathers were going for and setting up our country in this, this little experiment that we're, that we're still in. Um, but democracy is a stand-in. Like, democracy will not exist at the redemption of all things. There's no democracy in the new heavens and the new earth. 
the ultimate reality is a kingdom with a king who is the sovereign authority and Lord over all. And his name is Jesus. And he reigns with perfect righteousness and justice and compassion. So authority is, is a very complicated thing for us, uh, if you're like me, to be kind of cynical about it. We've seen lots of abuses of power. Maybe some of us have been under authorities who are less than competent, and so it's hard to trust and follow them. Uh, some of us may have been under competent leaders that are kind of heavy-handed and ambitious and have been abused by people in authority. And today, as we look at our King Jesus and his authority, it presents us with a beautiful invitation to just imagine, meditate on what it would be like to, full, to embrace the one true king who is just, kind, and compassionate. Like, what would it be like to just fully relax into someone else's leadership with total confidence that they're good, that they know more than you? For me, this question both terrifies me and opens up a really tender longing in, in, in my soul. Like what, a, a part of me that just longs for an authority that I can completely just abandon myself to. Today, the main idea for us this morning uh, that we'll see throughout these, uh, these little stories is uh, an invitation to be apprentices of the compassionate king. Apprentices of the compassionate king. Those three words are kind of stand-ins for three themes. Uh, We're going to look uh, at the authority of Jesus as king. That's kind of one of the main things Mark is doing here. And the second one is apprenticeship or discipleship might be a more familiar word. Uh, But Dallas Willard would say that the word apprentices, I think, is way more accurate, way more helpful to describe what the Bible means when it's saying discipleship. It wasn't like just Sunday morning church, uh, meeting one-on-one with an older person to go through a workbook or taking classes, though that could, be, could obviously be part of it. Um, discipleship was way more like being an apprentice to an electrician, where you, you might have to learn some content, read some books, learn how electricity works, but the main work is going to work with the master electrician day after day, observing what he does, asking lots of questions, trying things out yourself, shocking yourself, getting in trouble, and having to learn with the goal that you become a master electrician yourself, that you become more like the the master electrician. And so it's kind of fun to imagine this passage that we're about to look at, like the the disciples' first uh, day on the job. Right before this passage, Jesus just displayed his authority to call them, to follow him, which is a pretty big power move, like, hey, quit your job and follow me. I like Not many people in this room, I feel like, could say that. And, and now we see what they do next. And there's almost like a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus with the disciples' first day on the job. It begins on uh, Saturday morning, the Jewish Sabbath in the synagogue, and it ends Sunday morning out in the wilderness. So there's a lot we can consider as Jesus' apprentices as we walk through this, these 24 hours. And so we can ask questions as we go through it, like, what, what, what can we learn and imitate? What does this show us? about Jesus' life rhythms. As the saying goes, you can't have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And well, I think a lot of our problems come because we might have embraced some of Jesus' teaching and some of his life rhythms, but then we try to live not that different. We haven't embraced all of Jesus' life, and so we've neglected other life rhythms that we see in our king um, because they, maybe they don't fit with our personality or, or whatever. And, and, then, and so the results are we're like trying to follow Jesus without embracing his way of life, and things get out of whack. 
And then the last thing is compassion. Our king, with all authority in heaven and on earth, is compassionate. This, the, these passages are so beautiful. His tenderness towards, towards weakness, his receptivity to, patient, uh, to people wherever they are. He's patient and kind. So that's the invitation uh, to see that we are his apprentices um, and that we, he is a compassionate king. So let's dive in. Look at verse 21. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus' authority is front and center here, the main point that Mark is trying to make. He goes to church and begins teaching, and the people are amazed by Jesus. That would be an awesome title for a sermon series, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, Jesus stands out and blows people's mind. Why? What is he doing here? He's teaching the Bible. He doesn't have to quote C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller like I do uh, because he has authority in and of himself to land the plane and drop bombs because he's Jesus. Verse 23, the authority continues. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So he commands this unclean spirit. This is showing us that Jesus has authority over all the the spiritual powers and authorities that the Bible talks about. You notice there's not a debate going on. There's not like a, like a negotiation happening. Jesus speaks, be silent, and the unclean spirit has to submit to the authority. And the crowd sees, sees a connection over his authority and his teaching, and then that authority lived out in the spiritual realm. These spirits who are his enemies, who hate him, have to obey him, even though they don't want to. It shows us our king. It shows us what Paul will say later, that one day every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether someone likes it or not, that is the end of the story. Jesus on the throne as the undeniable sovereign Lord of all. Now from an apprenticeship aspect, what's the first thing that Jesus does with his new apprentices? He takes them to church and reads the Bible to them. One of the main takeaways that I hope we see in apprenticeship to Jesus is how incredibly ordinary the planned events are in Jesus' life rhythms. He doesn't take him to the top of a mountain and show him how to levitate or do some some big fancy thing. Um, And of course, there are miracles, but notice in this passage especially, all of them are interruptions to these radically ordinary ways of life that Jesus is going about with his apprentices. They never seem to be on the agenda. And I was just like blown away meditating on this, on this this week that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth and was so about the Bible. He's always quoting it, referring, referring to it. Uh, and, and this is what I was thinking about this week. One of the things he did the most, the Bible tells us, after he rose from the dead, as the resurrected Savior, was teach the Bible to people, to show people that he was through, all throughout scriptures and he fulfilled the scriptures with his resurrection. So following Jesus, being his apprentice means that we are about the Bible. Like we are immersed in it. It's our, it defines reality. And I think in particular, if we follow Jesus, it's, it's worth noting that we will follow him into the Old Testament. 
Because that's what Jesus was talking about. That's what he was reading here in our passage. And we see Jesus embracing Sabbath, entering into the worship space, gathering with God's people to rest and delight and to participate in corporate worship. As we'll get to later in the book, he didn't follow all the like bonus man-made laws around the Sabbath or whatever, uh, but he rested every week. You know, what does that mean for us as his apprentices? How might, that, how might Jesus' Sabbath life rhythm impacted his ability to do fruitful ministry? How might this, this week to stop and rest and acknowledge that God is with him impacted his ministry? And we see Jesus' compassion. I think we can assume that it was not pleasant for the man with an unclean spirit to live with this unclean spirit. In other accounts of Jesus delivering people from unclean spirits, it uses language like being set free, loosening bondage, taking people out from their bonds. I think this shows us something profound about Jesus' authority and compassion combined. There is an authority that chains you and drains you, and there's an authority that sets you free. Not necessarily to do anything you want, Jesus will definitely step on your toes. But true and good authority creates space for you to flourish, to leave what is not the abundant life that Jesus came to give you and invites you into the life God has for you with him. The most obvious example of this is parenting. As a parent, you have a lot of authority over your kids, and you use that. You step on their toes, hopefully not literally. You, know, you put limits and boundaries around your kids. Why? Because you're mean? Because you want to squash them? No, because you want them to flourish and thrive. That's what God has for us. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So we see another angle of Jesus' authority, which is his authority over creation, specifically the real physical bodies of real physical people. The effects of sin and brokenness in creation don't stand up to Jesus' renewing, healing, redeeming power. Pastor Mike brought up a great line in our preaching cohort on Wednesday uh, from uh, The Return of the King in uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, series where it's at the end when it's looking very bleak. It says, as the wounded grow steadily sicker in poison from the poison of the enemy's weapons, one of the city nurses recalls a legend which says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. I don't think, I personally don't often think of kings and healers in the same way. You know, the, the king is strong, powerful, runs with the warriors and Chariots and then healers are tender, quiet, nurturers with the weak and the broken. But here we see Jesus is both. We see the healing flowing from Jesus' authority as king of the universe because he's good and his authority can make all things new. And then as his apprentices, we see Jesus taking his crew to church and then going over for Sunday chicken dinner. Uh, just going over to someone's mother-in-law's house for a meal around the table. Uh, It's worth noting that so much of Jesus' life with his disciples was just around the table. Humans, being a human with other humans, getting the sustenance he needs. 
A huge aspect of following Jesus is hospitality around the table for that exact reason. There's something like implicit and embodied in sharing a meal with people. Uh, is that we are all human, that we have needs, let's be filled together. The fact that God in the flesh did that with other humans is a staggering, staggering statement about what it means to be human. I just want to point out again, this is so ordinary. This isn't a huge program, a big revival, and massive church initiative. It's just Jesus followers opening up their table to others. And we see his compassion. You know, the mother-in-law's, mother-in-law is sick, and we see him touching her, like taking her by the hand. It says he lifted her up. Like just a picture Jesus, God in the flesh, taking her hand, wrapping his arm around her shoulders, and lifting her up off of the bed and healing her of her pain and sickness. It's so beautiful. And his, and his compassion keeps going, though, because the Jewish Sabbath ended at sundown, it says, uh, on Saturday. And so apparently everyone waited uh, and then showed up to get healing and deliverance. Just imagine the scene. Finishing Sabbath dinner and all these sick, messed up people come uh, to be saved. Let me read the passage here real quick. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he made many who were sick with various diseases, or he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So just picture Jesus here as the sky is still orange from the setting sun, receiving these broken, messed up, dirty, sick people looking them in the eyes and saying, what do you want me to do for you? What, what brings you to me tonight? Seeing him touching person after person after person in their shame, in the parts about them that they hate the most, and healing them. Now the next section has a lot to say about being apprentices to Jesus. And we see a, a little a glimpse of a core aspect of his life. Verse 35 And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So Jesus, we're tracking our 24 hours with Jesus, he just healed people late into the night. A busy, busy night healing people. And then he watched an hour of Netflix, then wine, and then just slept in after a full day of ministry. No, he woke up early to pray. And this this shows us something very important about Jesus' life. And the first thing I think is that Jesus was refreshed. He craved and was filled up by times alone in the desolate place, communing with his father. I don't, I, sometimes, depending on your church background, you can read it like, oh, Jesus worked really late, and then he, like, rise and grind, he got up and got after it again today. It wasn't that he was just like zonked and then he just decided to like press through. I think he was zonked. We see, we see in scripture Jesus taking naps and being weary after a journal, like after a journey. Jesus got tired, but it was because he was tired, because he was zonked, that he got away to be filled up. Peace Cazero says it like this Our doing for God must flow out of our being with God. I know people in ministry who do a lot for God, but when you're with them, it just feels hollow and like, like it doesn't have weight or soul because it's not coming out of this deep being with God. We see even Jesus, God in the flesh, needed to get away with his father and be restored and work through stuff. This is what we call the, the practice of silence and solitude. 
It ultimately, fundamentally, is a, is a way of praying. Is a, it's a type of prayer, space alone with God, where you can process what's going on in your life, what's happened. Hold your emotions, your anxieties and desires before God and listen to God in the spirit. See what he might say to you to those things. I want to be like brutally or, you know, fair and honest. Like it sounds in solitude is not always or even frequently like a spiritual spa day where you're just like, you know, and just like ready to, to crack it. A lot of times it's hard because the Holy Spirit brings up stuff in our hearts that we set up our whole busy lives to avoid looking at or dealing with it. But it's where true healing comes. It's where like real intimacy with our Father who sees us and loves us can be found. And I think it's interesting uh, that it seems like Jesus didn't even leave a note. Look at verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said, and he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. That is why I came out. Have you ever tried to get away, like maybe for vacation, and then you're like, oh, I didn't respond to that email, I forgot to call that guy back, or I didn't, you know, whatever. Dude, we were at the beach the other week, and Camille was like, I didn't turn off the stove, we're boiling egg, hard-boiling eggs, or whatever. They were very hard-boiled. You get that sense that you, it's like it's never time to leave. Like, ne- you've never, like, covered all the bases before you can, you can get away. But the sense I get here from Jesus, based on the disciples being like, where did he go? Is that he was just so desperate after this loaded day of ministry that he's just like, I just got to go. I just got to get away. Sometimes that's what you have to do to care for your, the health of your own soul. So that they had to go looking for him. The disciples seemed to be so jazzed about all the healing hype. Everyone's looking for you. You're getting popular. More people need to be healed. People need you, Jesus. But coming out of the quiet, coming out of the stillness with God before his loving gaze, Jesus was not swayed by the urgent. He had a groundedness, even in the face of legitimate needs, that he knows what he's called to do. And he can say yes and no with confidence. As Jesus' apprentices, can we see that just because there is a need does not mean that we're called to do that thing? Just because we could do it, or someone needs you, God can handle things. Our work is to know what God is calling us to do. And friends, we can't know that. We can't know that with very much clarity if we're frazzled and hurried and we never give Time for our souls to catch up with their bodies and listen carefully to God. To let the, the anxieties and distractions and you know, fleshly desires melt away so we can hear carefully what our Father's saying. We can't know that if we're living in constant distraction you know, with our phones and stuff. Now I think practically this plays out in two different ways in the life of an apprentice to Jesus, depending how you're wired. Um, for me, I'm learning as I grow older, that there's just more and more opportunities, good things that I have to say no to because of what God has called me to do. Like on a big level, like there's a vision of me farming, doing regenerative farming. And I have to like die to that vision about like 
twice a month or something. Like, I just will never do that. Like, I have chickens. That's all I can handle. On a small level, I'm, like, talking to Jesse about my new office and being like, oh, I could slap up some outlets. And it's like, no, I can't. Like, I, I don't have time to run outlets in my new office. Like, we need to, like, have other people do that. I like doing things. And I, like, feel like I'm always saying no. But if I'm not careful and don't carve out time with God in the silence and stillness, then I can find myself either overcommitting, like, I kind of did that this past week where I found myself like at Home Depot picking up materials for my office. I'm like, yeah, I probably should be working on my sermon here. Or I can be walking around with a low-grade anger where I'm, I'm more present to the things I'm saying no to than the things that I've said yes to, the things that God has given me right in front of me, like the good God-given work right here. On the other side of the personality spectrum or whatever, very sloppy with their terms here, but engaging and doing things might feel like bad news. Sometimes like doing stuff is is the bad news. For me, not doing stuff is the bad news. Maybe all of our life is set up to, you know, maximize time at home, on the couch, not being bothered. And we might be anxious and depressed, but we're safe. We have a decent sense of control. Then the invitation for those of us in that place is to see that Jesus... God alone, in the quiet, in the stillness. Not to like binge a show and crash, but to be quiet with his God. And then what happened? He got to work. He went and joined God <clears throat> on the, his mission. Silence and solitude, it can be, uh, if your life was a car, silence and solitude can be the gas pedal or it can be the brake pedal. For me, it's very much the brakes. But if you struggle to have confidence and clarity, no how to act or what to do, silence and solitude can be a chance to, to hear God say, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and I'm pleased with you, and I've set apart good works for you to walk in. And as we come home to ourselves, we can have a sense of what God is calling us to do. And we can say yes to some things, no to other things. We can look at people that have a way bigger capacity doing a lot more than we could do and be like, praise God for you, that's not me. What I'm saying, the bottom line is this. Being with God in silence and solitude naturally flows into being with God on his mission. And being with God on his mission requires us to be with him in silence and solitude. This this is a pattern of Jesus' life. This is not a one-off little glimpse of Jesus' lifestyle. He's repeatedly modeled this practice of engaging and disengaging, doing gospel ministry and being alone and quiet in prayer with his Father. Look at verse 39. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So to recap, he was up early. The disciples want him to get back to the action, but he's like, no, I got to preach. And so what do they do? They jump in their Honda Accord. It's the official car of the Bible. All the disciples were in one accord. Any pastor joke people? Um, no, that wasn't the, the mode of travel available to Jesus. If you've ever seen the, the TV series, The Chosen, highly recommend it. I love the show for so many level, on levels, but they capture something that I've always thought about as I've read the gospel. It's like how boring it would have been to like, walk with Jesus. Like how, like there's, there's episodes where like, they, nothing happens. It's just like them talking out in the scrubby, like, in between places, between towns. Like, it, Jesus walks three to four miles an hour between towns to preach the gospel. There was, so there's so much downtime we see with Jesus, just like implicit. Even, even Mark, with his like 
rapid speed of, of the narrative, is everything's immediate, everything's immediately, has him just like walking to the next town. I think this shows another evidence of the ordinariness of apprenticeship to Jesus. It looks like being with him in the mundane, in the in-between times, not just in the showdown with demons or miracles, not even just at church or even in intentional spaces of silence and solitude. It's just as you're going throughout your life. Verse 40, they're interrupted on their walk. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. As he was going, we see him get interrupted and a miracle happens because of an interruption to a broken person. Guys, let's just soak in this image of Jesus with this man. How did he respond? Leprosy was a gross, gross disease. It disfigured your face, left open wounds on your skin. You know, culturally, you were a literal outcast, like you couldn't be with your family, to live in leper colonies like caves with other lepers, and no one would touch you. And I love it, like Mark, with all his immediate lease, like all his rapid speed, it's, it's like this like slow-mo movement where he gets at Jesus' heart and said, moved with pity, he reached out and touched him, stretched out his hand and touched him and healed him. Jesus' response to interruptions from the least of these, his response to life situations that are uh, repulsive is pity. The word translated pity here uh, can also be translated compassion. It's one of my favorite Greek words. I'm not supposed to talk about Greek they tell you in seminary, but this is one of my favorite ones. It's splank nizomai. That's why I like it, because it's like it's real like guttural. And it comes from the Greek word splanknon, which is stomach. So this concept of compassion in pity is, is this like deep gut level like empathy feeling. And even our, our English word compassion comes from Latin, which it means to suffer with. Passion is suffering, commas with. Um, and so it's, it's this, this image of this deep, deep, I feel you, I feel your suffering, and it causes him to reach out and touch the man. The best image for this is of a mother seeing her young child crying and hurting, and just like the, that, 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 that compulsion to move towards in tenderness, to heal and comfort. Behold our compassionate king, friends. If you're wondering how Jesus would respond to you in your pain, and your brokenness and the parts of you that you're most ashamed about, that you feel most like an outsider about, here it is. When we come to our compassionate king in desperation, he sees us, he has compassion on us, he has pity on us, and he touches us. And I love that the ESV uses the word pity here. I think it's a way more accurate. Compassion is also a beautiful word, but like it, sometimes it feels a little more like dignified, like, I just need some compassion right now. Like, when's the last time you asked anybody for pity? Have, have pity on me. Uh, you, like the Jesus prayer, you know, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have pity on me, a sinner. That's what the leper does. He knows Jesus' authority. If you can, if you, if you will, you can do it. Uh, he knows he's capable. And pity is met with compassion, with tenderness with an experience of Jesus' healing, renewing power in a way that would not be available without it, without the desperation and need for pity. So walking through the Gospels like this is one of my favorite things to do. I tried to make it short, but sorry. 
because uh, entering into everything that we have from Jesus in the Gospels is so crucial if we're going to identify as his disciples, as his apprentices. Uh, in our Become Like Jesus class last winter, we, we talked about this idea of apprenticeship to Jesus a lot. And there was a guy in the class who had trained for most of his uh, life to be a you know, world-class trumpet player. And he told a story from his undergrad days where he had a summer in between you know, years and he heard about a trumpet player in another state and was like, I want to be like that guy. And so he moved to that state, got a part-time job, and just set, his, set up his life to be available to be with and learn from this master trumpet player. It was really powerful in the class. This guy was reflecting on how he never even thought about the same kind of idea applying to Jesus. Like, I, I am a disciple. I want to be like Jesus, but um, I've never even thought about that level of intentionality. I'll do it for the trumpet, but I won't do it to be transformed into the, the son of God. That sounds worthwhile. And, um, but what was profound was his next step was to just slowly read through the Gospels, all four of them, just over and over and over again for a year. Start each day hearing from and observing his compassionate king. That's the invitation I extend to you, friends. If you're like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to, I want to be his apprentice. Like, what, what do, I, do I need to move to Africa? Do I need to quit my job? Maybe. Let's talk about that. But a great place to start is just to soak your mind, fill your mind with the gospel, what Jesus said and did in the four gospels. I think it's amazing, if you think about it, that we have these four gospels. Like, there's a, a finite amount of content. Like, you're like beginning and end, there's like a finite amount of source material we have for the king of kings, of what he said and did, and what God sovereignly ordained for us to have, like in writing, immovably. And, and John 8 says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Like, let's make our home in the gospels. Like, even if you're in a reading plan or got other stuff going on in your quiet time, like add one chapter or even just one paragraph each morning in the gospel with that, with that prayer, like, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to be your apprentice. Show me, talk to me, speak to me. And I think over time, in the power of the Spirit, you will begin to see the world through a kingdom lens. The kingdom is like an like ethos. It's like, a, it's like a, a culture. You know, it's not like a play-by-play book in the Gospels, like, you know, do this when your kid does this or something like that. Instead, we immerse ourselves in all of Scripture, but I'm talking specifically the Gospels, and we can see how, what might Jesus do in this situation? How does Jesus respond in various situations, and that will become more and more natural to us. It will become more natural to respond the way Jesus responds. It isn't a one-and-done thing. It's a lifetime-long thing. Um, some, some data for you. It only takes about eight hours to read through all four Gospels if you were to sit down and do it in like one sitting at an average reading speed. So if you were to do that in a month, that's less than 15 minutes a day. Uh, so just hear a practical invitation, just like little chunks day to day to soak in the Gospels and see what God would have for you in the word that he's sovereignly ordained for us to have. To close, I want to touch on these strange moments. I kind of skipped over them where Jesus seems to be like trying to be sneaky, tries to be like secretive and doesn't want anybody to, to talk. You know, he's like silencing the, de- the demons. He says, it's demons be silent. The other ones... Later that night, he doesn't permit them to speak. And then in verse 43, after he heals this guy, it says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Why is this? What's going on here? Well, another quote from a preaching cohort from Mark Bergen is that the king without the cross is going to mess you up. 
So Jesus has not gone to the cross yet, just context. Uh, and you cannot fully follow the compassionate king without seeing and embracing the reality of the king's cross. So people are seeing the king. They're, they're getting a taste of the kingdom as they're getting healed and they're hearing scripture unpacked with authority. And it could have been so easy to see Jesus and his kingdom as this like up and to the right kind of thing. Like it's taking off. It's a Silicon Valley startup. Like get in early so you can be part of the new world order. But Jesus knows that without the cross, it won't fully make sense. That to be his apprentices and to follow our compassionate king, we need to embrace the cross. Because the cross makes his compassion complete. He saw us in our desperate state, stuck in our sin, and had pity on us. Taking on our sin, releasing us of our unclean spirit so that we can be free to choose to follow him as his apprentices. In the cross, we see the staggering paradox of Jesus' authority, that he was at his most powerful, accomplishing the redemption for the whole world when he was nailed to wood, dying naked in front of a crowd. Power is made perfect in weakness. Our king is victorious in his death, and his death has brought new life to all who follow him. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for 